Chapter Seven of Six Women and the Invasion by Greta and Marguerite Yerta. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. After the convoy's departure, Morny was empty. The only Prussians left were those who held the lines of communication and a few soldiers at the sugar factory. We walked abroad without meeting the enemy at every turn. In brief, we felt at home again. We were all like people crushed by a landslip, who recover their breath and take on again their former shape as the earth disappears which overwhelmed them. But alas, it was out of the question to forget the past. Empty barns, stables and poultry yards, deprived of their inhabitants, bore witness to the passage of the scourge. Other things also proved that the wind was blowing from the east, whence came the all-devouring grasshoppers. One morning, as I came back from a quest after milk, I stood still, struck with amazement, and followed the example of the dairywoman in the fable. I looked at the village steeple, and could make nothing of the time it proclaimed to the four points of the compass. Old Tassin happened to pass by. Well, Madame Valin, said he, what do you make of this? It is German time up there. We are Prussians now. I lifted up my eyes to the sky, and seeing the sun felt easier in my mind. No change there. It was eight, not nine o'clock. Yet they had made fruitless attempts to set the sun by the German time, I was sure. That is why I saw officers cast reproachful looks at the sun, which dared tell the French time in a territory occupied by Germans. That is why I saw officers cast reproachful looks at the sun, which dared tell the French time in a territory occupied by Germans. That was playing them false, that was treason, and the sun would rue it bitterly. A certain regiment passing through Morny chanced to trust to the village clock and did not reach its goal at the appointed time. The delay was the cause of a failure which put some bigwigs with helmets on into a rage. In short, the village constable was ordered to put the machine right, the German time being the only right time under the sun. However, the departure of our guests set us at ease, and the whole village along with us. As the village might not revictual itself officially, it revictualled itself by fraud, and as much as possible. Now there lives in Morny a sympathetic drunkard named Durand, fond of quarrelling as he is in his cups, when in a sober state he is a good, kindly soul. He had been invalided because his hands were twisted by gout, and this infirmity rendered him equally unfit for the work of the fields, so he became a tradesman. He deals usually in rabbit skins, scrap iron and rags. His business and stock in trade consist of a box set up on two wheels and drawn by a good-natured yellow dog. Scrap iron may hide a good many things, and with a view to present circumstances, our friend contrived to extend his import trade. 
far from me to hint that durand in ordinary times snaps his fingers at the gendarmes and laughs at the laws practices as common in our border department as unseemly everywhere but he improvised with the war a wonderful cunning thanks to which he smuggled all sorts of necessary things into morny under the german's very eyes in his surprise packet were concealed butter grease chocolate sugar to say nothing of candles the housewives scrambled for the provisions which rose almost to the usual level the weary dog put out his tongue and laughed for he knew well that we were getting the better of the germans he was not the only one to laugh the peasants too laughed in their sleeves when they saw the germans stock still in the mountains at the first moment of invasion the people were struck with dismay the arrogant enemy sure of victory seemed to meet with no obstacles handsome men well armed and equipped ah there is no reason to laugh at them said the old women they thought the situation hopeless but now it was whispered about they won't pass the mountains they won't cross the n at this conviction their hearts rose which yesterday had been filled with bitterness evidently the invaders had been stopped they knew not how but the fact remained one morning i encountered a knot of gossips in the street they talked of a new attack on soissons madame tassin assured us that william had said they must pass and pass they must without stopping in my walk i interjected and general powell said that they won't pass and pass they won't it was reported that a french prisoner had spoken these words in leon whether general powell had really expressed himself thus i don't know but the germans gained no more ground we were sure of that but it was no less certain that we were caught in a trap that we could not stir a limb we had good hopes the trial would not last long all the same the situation could not be helped and we resolved to accept it in the village things were going tolerably while the baker's wife gallant soul made her bread the work of the fields progressed slowly they left the beetroots as long as possible in the earth expecting that our french would come back before the harvest which was superb at length they had to submit to fate and bury the precious roots in vast silos with us the days crawled by like centuries it is true that the housekeeping entirely rested with us it was no use looking for help in the village women who had not a good many children to look after were working out in the fields only madame tassin consented from time to time to come and help us but how many hours what long evenings remain to fill for six women shut up in a house what indeed can you do at home but dream if you are a hare and sew if you are a woman we sewed after barboo's stay a little petroleum was left which we used with miserly care at dinner we contented ourselves with a night-light and when we worked only our heads were allowed to come within the circuit of the lamp. We made sets of baby linen for poor little ones who took it into their heads to be born into the world when their fathers had gone off to the war and had left larder and purse 
at home empty. We competed with one another in the making of caps and shirts. Yvonne is amazingly clever, and when she has a mind to sew, works no end of wonders in a trice. Our ambition increased with success. We fashioned web-like laces, and our embroidery might have aroused the jealousy of the fairies. Generally, we kept silence. Sighs frequently answered the guns, and if we talked, we poured out plaints of pity for those who fought, or called up remembrances of happier days. Just think there are people who get letters. We moaned at the thought of our deprivation. Lucky people, they know if their relations are dead or alive. At this very moment, there are some who read the papers. Oh, rage, oh, despair, oh, hostile blockade. And there are some people who know the truth. When shall we see a newspaper again? At this very moment, some are enjoying nice things to eat. Oh, for a tea at Rumpelmeyer's. Oh, for chocolates from Bihan. Such memories did but sharpen the thorn of our hunger, and yet we had not lost all the pleasures of life. For instance, do you suppose we had given up tea in the afternoon? By no means. It is highly important that women should swallow something good and hot about five o'clock. Simple toast was the only dainty we allowed ourselves. Well-buttered toast with a well-sugared cup of tea is not to be despised. Hold. Toast, yes, but no butter. The little we had was jealously salted and reserved for cooking. And tea? Do you think tea a native of the department of the Ain? Tea was no more to be had. Sugar was so scarce that we never ate a single lump without a family council to decide whether it was the proper moment. Fortunately, I found a recipe of my grandmother's at the bottom of my reticule. I requisitioned all the licorice in mourning. Madame Lantois's walnut tree provided us at little cost with a basketful of green, shining leaves. Walnut leaves are like good women. In the long run, they may lose their beauty, but they retain their virtue. These leaves, then, boiled with licorice, gave us a delicious drink all the winter, which had nothing in common with the pale decoctions we nowadays moisten our throats with, at the end of a dinner party. I had been careful to say negligently, this tea is excellent for the complexion. Regularly taken, it would greatly improve the skin and give it a matchless bloom. No one ever missed the afternoon tea. The ceremony indeed was often transformed into a great patriotic meeting, vibrating with despair and lamentations, or with enthusiasm and hope, according to the news of the day. For news we had, though I said we got none, and it was commented upon with passion. Our news, of course, was all unofficial, and evil or good rode fast. It spread throughout the country. It floated in the air. It came from every quarter. When I left Madame Lantoise's dairy with a canful of milk, my pocket was also full of news. Likewise, if we went to the baker or if we called on Monsieur Lonette, the initiated came back in a hurry, called the whole family to gather round and feverishly told the news. 
We ended by putting a bell in the dining room, known as the war bell. If one of us heard anything fresh, she rushed into the room and frantically rang the bell. From the garden, the attic, the bedrooms, we flocked, allured by the hope of good tidings. What has happened? What is going on? Marvellous things always happened. Periodically, at least twice a month, neighbouring towns were retaken by the French. You know that cannonade, so violent, simply meant that our soldiers recovered St. Quentin. Noyon also was reconquered, I do not know how many times, and La Faire retaken with bayonets. Once the news really seemed worthy of belief, the Germans had put it up in Léon. La Faire has been in a cowardly manner retaken by the French. We thought it true. Really now, who would make up such an adjective? The Germans had certainly used it. On inquiry, it was found that the adjective, like the news, had been invented and the bill had never existed at all. Glorious feats were just as frequent on the front near us. The Route des Dames, you know, the French have held it since yesterday, and tonight they have carried the village of Isle. Really, I thought they took it last week. Last week it was a false report. Today the thing is certain. And the Allies, think how they worked. 70,000 Russians have just landed at Antwerp. The English are shelling Hamburg. Our northern army is advancing. Yes, it is. Deliverance will come from the north. Ah, the secret of making legends is not lost. Popular imagination invents hundreds of them. But nowadays they cannot live long. Books and newspapers cut their wings as soon as they are hatched, and the poor things flutter an instant and then die. But imagine a corner of the country like ours, perfectly isolated from the rest of the world for some ten years, and deprived of all news, all writings. Suppose the peasants should be questioned long after upon the events of the present war, from their statements you might compose the most beautiful epic poem ever heard, as in the good old time, its title would be The Jests of the French by the Grace of God. Frenchmen, my brothers, I know you were splendid. You fought like lions, like the heroes that you are. Your glorious feats are too numerous to be counted. It was our despair not to know them. But in revenge we invented feats for you, fresh ones every day. Once, for instance, the French, masters of the stone quarries of Passy, made good use of a secret passage, and leaping unexpectedly from out of the ground, flick, flack, flick, spread death and dismay among the Germans. Then, like jacks in the box, they disappeared as if by magic. Struck with consternation, the Germans would have thought themselves dreaming had not too many proofs testified to the reality of the brief apparition. And what do you think of the chasseurs à pied, who, behind a hedge at Malva, planted a forest of poles with a cap on the top of every one? And then, when the enemy, with loud cries, were in the very act of rushing upon this trap, shot them down to the very last man. And don't let us forget the Africans. 
Ten Negroes from Senegal, you understand, ten, sprang out of their trenches on a night as black as ink. Of course, we did not know whether Negroes were or were not in the trenches, noiselessly crept along the ground through brushwood and darkness, and shouting their war cry, bounded forward into the village of Chamouille. Panic-stricken, the German soldiers fled, while the officers, seventeen in number, not one more, not one less, let the Africans cut their throats like so many lambs. The ten Negroes lay down once more, flat on their faces, and crawling along on their hands and knees, went back to their trenches without a tassel missing from their caps, without a rent dishonouring their large breeches. These anecdotes were our daily bread. Innumerable were the villages taken by surprise, the convoys seized, the batteries triumphantly brought in. We were always breathless. Every one of us lent a half-sceptical ear to everything that was said and tried to detect a little truth among all this fiction. Who invented or transformed the news? It was difficult to know. Many a time Mr. Nobody Knows who had confided it to Mrs. So-and-so who told it to Mr. Everybody. But generally the information came from the best sources. If Monsieur H., the mayor of Léon, had really said all that was ascribed to him, he had done nothing else but commit the secrets of our army to the office porter or the fruiterer over the way. On the other hand, it is hard to conceive how many secrets our countrymen extracted from their German guests. Speaking of the officers to whom they gave hospitality, they assumed a mysterious air and hinted that, walking delicately, they had elicited from them avowals as mortifying for their pride as encouraging for us. But there was another origin, quite modern, for the news no one wanted to take upon himself. It was no difficult riddle. The news came from heaven. Aviators dropped it. Letters had been picked up here and there, said rumour. Some of them were evidently homemade and were but laughed at. This one, for instance. Friends, take courage. Reinforcements are coming. A touching contrivance of some ingenious liar to cheer up his neighbours. Other messages, written in a kind of official style, were so precise that they seemed worthy of attention, and one of them, known throughout the country as the message of Magni, was for a long time looked upon as authentic by the most competent judges. Oh, we were very credulous, and you laugh at us, all of you who read the papers every morning at your breakfast. We were so cruelly crushed by the invaders, so uneasy at hearing nothing, so eager for news, which might have been bones for our anxiety to gnaw, that we greedily snatched at all the falsehoods we came across and found our mouths a minute after full of sand. Was there no means of encouraging us? Floods of sentimental ink were wasted elsewhere upon our fate, but the smallest drop spilt in the Verdandois or the Léonois would have done us more good. We had not deserved thus to be forsaken, but we were admirable. I maintain, laying aside all useless modesty, I maintain that we were admirable. 
Our persons and properties have been given up as hostages. A line was chalked out on the map. It was the part to be sacrificed. In this part we were shut up, bodies and souls, with no possibility of shaking ourselves free. We not only suffered it to be so, we agreed to the bargain. We resigned ourselves to hunger, misfortune, oppression. We submitted to see our houses plundered, our forests levelled with the ground, our lands destroyed, so that the rest of the country might be safe, the metropolis undamaged, that France herself might be free to recover her power and to prepare her vengeance. Exposed to violence, requisitions, even to reprisals, we did not give way. We wished for victory, never for peace. We thought of France, not of ourselves. But what unbearable pangs did we bear? We laboured under the hope deferreth that maketh the heart sick, as the Bible says. Sometimes we seem to think the burden too heavy for our strength and impossible to be borne any longer. What became of us when in the last days of October the Germans arrogantly announced that they had won a victory at Soissons, that they had broken through and that they were going on to Paris. Paris, Paris. We were heartbroken by it, sunk in desolation. And when thereupon came the welcome message of Magni, full of excellent things, although scandalously false, should we not have believed it true? Rather than not to have believed it, we should have framed and hung a copy in every house. The message of Magni made its appearance on All Saints' Day. On coming back from the cemetery, we watched the shelling of a French aeroplane, which laughed at its assailant and the smoke of the shells was like small round balls, gilt by the sun. The cannon rolled furiously in the direction of Noyon, and we thought, if they have passed, it is not over there. In the village we heard the good news that everyone whispered in his neighbour's ear, They have not passed! They have been beaten! Oh joy, how lovely is the day! And how near is the capital to the Tarpeian Rock! Yesterday we lay on the ground, broken with the shock. Today, lively and drunk with joy, we rush with a bound towards the regions of trust and hope. The best source of news was Madame Lantoise. The kitchen of the farm is a large, gay, bright room, whose painted walls, black and white flags, glittering copper saucepans and cages full of songbirds are pleasant to the eye. A select society was to be met there about five in the evening. To find a seat you had to disturb one of the cats which lay enthroned on all free chairs. To upset a cat is high treason. To remain standing would have looked uncivil. I used to get out of the scrape by taking on my lap Grosse Blanc, Yeye, or Belle Limace, who seemed to approve of this arrangement. All tongues were let loose. First we exchanged and commented upon the news of the day. What troops, infantry, cavalry, artillery, had been seen in Morny and its neighbourhood, whether there were many of them and which direction they took, whether the trains were loaded with soldiers or ammunition, these were the questions asked and answered. 
Then we were told what wounded soldiers and prisoners had been brought to Leon, and heard what motor cars had traversed the village. Twice, the emperor himself was seen within our gates in an iron-plated car, preceded and followed by two cars occupied by soldiers armed to the teeth. Upon this occasion, the Prussians of the village, posted on both sides of the road, had bawled themselves hoarse to such a degree that they had been obliged to run to the next cellar in order to moisten their gullets. Hundreds of pairs of eyes, moreover, had watched the sky and discovered aeroplanes, English or French, which had been fired at by such and such a battery. The German flying machines had been disporting themselves here or there. The captive balloon, William Sausage, had perched above certain points. How many of us had, the night before, observed the signals that came from Leon or glittered in the mountains? The ears had just as much to do as the eyes. Guns had been fired from this quarter and that. German cannon or French ordnance or field piece. In one direction a mine had been fired. In fine weather we heard the sound of rifles or the crackling of mitrailleurs. One stormy day the workmen declared that they had heard the French bugles sound for a charge. What a fine harvest of news we gathered every evening. What would we not have given to be able to hand it on to those who might have turned it to good account? When we had gone all over it again, there followed a warmly conducted debate. We drew conclusions as to the successes or reverses each side had met with, or as to the positions they occupied. But as it is impossible always to be discussing strategy, and as we could talk only of the war, we fell to telling stories, and many of them touched upon our general flight before the Germans and its failure. Monsieur and Madame Lantoise, with their son René, a big lad of 18, had tried to run away too, not like ourselves, on foot, but in a cart drawn by two stout horses. The prudent hands of the farmer's wife had heaped up in the bottom of the vehicle two sacks of flour, a keg of wine, a barrel of salt pork, two hundred eggs, and even... Thirty bottles of petroleum. No matter whither they would have to go, they were thus prepared for any events. The first hours all went well, but near nouvion les vigneurs the fugitives were overtaken by the French army. They were ordered to draw up on the roadside and wait. Night fell. The soldiers kept on advancing. A cannon happened to break down and got somewhat injured. So the weary farmer went to sleep leaning against a post, while his wife, lantern in hand, gave a light to the poor gunners, who, cursing and swearing, did their best to mend the damaged wheel. The stream of men flowed on uninterruptedly till the morning. The good people who had kept out of the way all this time thought the moment propitious to resume their journey. They put the horses to, and were about to move forward when they were startled by a loud shout. Fresh soldiers were advancing, and they were Prussians. I am sure, Madame Lantoise said, that at this point they were not three miles away from our rear guard. 
Horses, cart, provisions, and even petroleum, ogres turn up their noses at nothing, were swallowed in a mouthful. The three fugitives, despoiled and abashed, came back on foot to Morney, all whose inhabitants returned to their houses sheepish and downcast. In other places, the Germans were not even put to the trouble of despoiling the people who, of their own free will, sacrificed to the newcomers. They mistook them for English soldiers. In Festier, for instance, not far from us, the urchins of the village cried out, The English are coming! And the peasants crowded about them. They had already stripped themselves for the French, but all the same they were eager to welcome the Allies and they poured out wine and coffee, they offered fruit and biscuits. The woman who told us this story, after she had shared a whole pail of lemonade among those poor boys who were so hot, went to the tallest of the band, a man with gold lace, and in a very loud voice, so that he might understand French the better, said to him, Well, as a reward, you will bring us William's head. The man spread out his face in a broad grin, and wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, answered, We know English. We Germans. Tableau! This comical scene had its tragic side. In the same village were still two French foot soldiers. A kindly soul ran to call them. Come quick, there are English soldiers here. We are all brothers. Smiling, the soldiers came up. You idiots, they cried, they are Prussians. And climbing upon a carriage, which happened to stand there, they opened fire upon the invaders. The Germans replied. A refugee was wounded. The women screamed. All fled and hid themselves. Of the two courageous soldiers, one, alas, was killed and the other taken prisoner. More than once we heard accounts of the fighting from eyewitnesses. Monsieur and Madame Robert, large landowners of the eye, told us how their village had been occupied by the enemy. Every day German patrols had been seen in the place, but one morning the French came back. All fell into raptures, kissed one another, marvelled at the return, dug up their treasures and kept the day as a feast. In the evening, the youths of the village went for a walk with the Zouaves, listening to the warriors' tales, and the fiddler of the village played madly the sole tune that he knew. The next morning, about half-past five, Madame Robert, looking out of the window, said to her husband, Look, someone is trying to get in through the orchard gate. In truth, someone was coming in. The Germans had arrived in great numbers. They sprang up from all sides. Our soldiers were ready. A close fight took place in the orchards, in the gardens, in the barns, and chiefly in the big yard of the farm. At the outset of the skirmish, an officer had pushed the inhabitants into the kitchen. Stay there. Don't go out. The defenders of the village had to fight against fearful odds, and yet many Germans seemed to play their part reluctantly. Some of them took refuge in the barns and hid themselves to avoid the scuffle. Then a captain came up, armed with a kind of whip. 
the leather thongs of which were weighted with tiny leaden balls, and with this he vigorously lashed his soldiers until they returned to the hottest of the fight. The Zouaves fought like lions, but they were only 250 against an enemy ten times superior in number, and in spite of their efforts, at last gave way. Another German officer, noticing civilians in a room, cried aloud with anger and shut them up in an empty cellar. For a long time, the prisoners heard the noise of the fight going on above their heads, and little by little it became less violent, and then ceased completely. Only the third day in the morning were the poor people taken out of the cellar, half dead with hunger and cold. Monsieur and Madame Robert were still dressed as at the moment of the surprise, their naked feet lightly slippered, he with a nightcap and white ducks on, she in a morning jacket and short petticoats. They were not even allowed to go in for a minute to eat a bit of food and take clothes and money. It may be supposed that the German soldiers, always thrifty, had safely put into their pockets all that was worth stealing. Accompanied by soldiers, the poor people had to go on foot to Léon, half-naked and starved. Going through Chamouy, said Madame Robert, I was so hungry that I ate the potato peelings I found in the street. In Léon, the prisoners were set at liberty, and they went to relations of theirs, who did their best to comfort and clothe them. Such rich people, too, concluded the scandalized narrator. Discussions and stories were not the only thing that allured me to the farm. I had a secret there, the mystery of my life. I realized a dream, cherished since my girlhood. I learned to milk the cows. At nightfall, I jumped out of my window, fled to the warm stable, and there strove hard to draw milk from Lalotte's distended udders. She was a splendid, large-horned cow, which has since been requisitioned so that her milk might be reserved for His Excellency, the General So-and-So. The good animal mistook me for an awkward calf, and looking at me with commiseration, endeavoured to lick me tenderly. Oh, we acquired many talents we never had dared to aspire to before the war. We sawed wood, we dug in the garden, and everywhere it was the same. All tried to make up with their imagination and their work for the many things that were wanting. René Lantoise contrived an excellent blacking with soot and wax. Our neighbours grated and boiled their beetroots, and so made treacle that they used instead of sugar, while a grocer manufactured sweets, which were a great success among the urchins of the place and the forest saw more women cutting wood than ever it had seen men. When we were dissatisfied with the local products, we went off to Léon. I think that a longing for movement peculiar to all captive animals chiefly drew us to such adventures. Léon may be small and provincial, but while you are there, it gives you the impression of a town. You see tall houses, narrow streets, and policemen just as you see them in a capital. Booksellers, chemists and dentists smile at you at every corner of the streets. These institutions, which civilised people cannot do without, 
are scarcely to be met in mourning therefore and despite the uncertain times we lived in we rarely let a fortnight pass without organizing an expedition to our county town two or three of us went off accompanied by the anxiety and good wishes of the family and returned home in triumph bringing back good news balls of thread and worsted for our needles and on lucky days a few pounds of provisions thus it was that yvonne and i went once to leon on foot the only method of travelling at our disposal with our neighbour madame lantoise our shopping done we could not help going in the direction of the agence a big building a sort of agricultural exchange in which french soldiers were being nursed of course we were forbidden to visit the prisoners but by good luck two hundred and fifty of them were just starting for germany and we had but to wait a moment for them we saw them go down the flights of steps limping and looking piteous and ill they fell into line on the foot pavement oh what sad happiness it was to see once more their dear caps their red trousers their lively faces when we had met only wooden heads for nearly two months. Many were too weak to stand, and they dropped on benches or on the steps of the staircase. A turco sat down on the pavement with a faraway air. Mektoub! As they were going away, we wanted to get something to give them. Not a shop was open save the chemist's over the way. We went in to buy cough lozenges of all kinds. Owing to the circumstance, the chemist let his whole stock go at the lowest possible price, and his wife loaded us with piles of handkerchiefs. So we divided our poor gifts right and left. A big, dark-haired lad felt the fine linen with pleasure. A handkerchief? Think, these last two months I never had one. Their guardians did not prevent us from talking to the prisoners, but when they caught sight of an officer, they sent us rudely away. Most of the captives had been wounded and taken in the neighbourhood of Crayon, Berry, Aubac, and La Ville-à-Bois. They did not complain, said they had been pretty well treated, but they were unanimous in adding. The English are most wretched. They are tormented in every possible way. Presently, we saw the English prisoners get down the steps in their turn, half a dozen big, thin men with worn countenances that moved our pity. A stout German under-officer thought well to give us his opinion. Here are the English, said he. Look at their pig heads. They ought all to be shot, not the French, he added, to be agreeable, only the English. We wanted the poor Tommies to have their share too as I was threading my way through the crowd, and they were stretching out their hands, their guardian, with a blow of his large claws, swept away the boxes of sweets and put them into his pocket, amid the laughs of his comrades. It was too late to make good the Germans' mischief, for the soldiers were already moving forward. The less injured limped quickly away. A car drove the others to the station, into which no civilian was allowed to penetrate, and after many salutations, we watched them go to captivity with a sad heart. Our visits to the county town were not all marked by such incidents. One day, Yvonne was copying, in order not to lose a word, the official reports in which we read, 
German victory here, Prussian success there, Austrian army advancing this way, English forces retreating in that one, and believing nothing of it, she burst out laughing as she traced the news with her ironical pencil. A stern-looking sergeant came up and announced, You not laugh, townspeople, all that true. But we laughed all the same. Everyone laughed at those reports, the sincerity of which was doubtful, which appeared to us still more false than they were, and which yet were the only threads which connected us with the rest of the world. Fortunately, the benevolent Germans resolved to keep us informed of what was going on, and published a weekly paper at Léon, the Journal de Guerre, which appeared for the first time in November. The purpose of this publication, we were told, was to let the invaded know the truth about the war. Oh, a German truth, of course, carefully dressed up for their self-respect, prevents our enemy from showing us unveiled so indiscreet a person as truth. And the people laughed more than ever. They laughed from Soissons to La Faire, from Anisi to Mal. I must say that the newspaper was, according to us, if not to the authors, ludicrous, both in matter and manner. It was written in a language closely connected with the French, with a knowledge of philology and some application, you managed to make out even the obscurest sentences. Thus, after a little practice, we succeeded in reading the new idiom quite fluently, if we were still unable to appreciate its niceties. The first number of this precious periodical was a real poem. It was addressed to the high and chivalrous sentiments of the true French nation. Its authors did not despair of explaining to the French nation that its government and its allies had shamefully deceived it and hoped that it would soon see who was really responsible for the war, what humane and disinterested part Germany had borne in the whole affair. In another article, peace was openly hinted at and the author set forth the advantages which France would get if she listened to reason. That is, if she abandoned the Allies and sided with gentle Germany. And then, forgetful of all reserve, the Germans added that, in case of peace, the government, far from requiring a contribution of war, would probably be inclined to build a bridge of gold to France. What a good promise we had there, as Bismarck did in 66 to Austria. It seemed weakness the profound politician added. It was strength. If the learned members of the German universities had but attended a common school in France, they would have learned that which our La Fontaine wrote. If we force our talent, we shall do nothing with grace. Maybe they had understood that sweet manners are not congenial to their nature, that the voice of the cannon alone suits their temper. We should not see them propose to France with bows and smiles the fate of vassal that Austria had accepted in 66. On the second page, the Journal de Guerre magnified the capture of Antwerp and described its consequences in pompous phrases. 
then the author of a small and acid article concerning the relations of France and Russia, concluded with this sentence as witty as it is nicely turned. Varus, Varus, give me back my millions and my billions. If Russia listens to that, it is very doubtful. This is a literal translation. Indeed, we laughed. Not a Homeric laugh, of course. Stifled laughter may be. A tittering rather than a hearty laugh. A catching laugh, which the enemy might have happened to overhear. A real laugh, all the same. We should have felt doubly prisoners if we had not made fun of our jailers, and to be prisoners only once was quite sufficient. As we knew German, we fell upon the papers we came across and bitterly enjoyed the high praises they bestowed on their high deeds. They pleasantly jeered at the party-coloured army of the Allies, at the Negroes, who, according to them, tremble with cold like a leaf tossed by the wind, which the Prussian libellers added must produce a bad effect in a battle. A number of Simplicissimus completed our edification. The proud German Michael was represented spitting his seven foes on his mighty sword. The Cossacks, bullying women and children, turn up the whites of their eyes at the sight of a single Ulan and fall on their knees. In Lorraine, the German soldiers, by way of a charge, leave off firing at the French. Let us keep a few of them to kill with bayonets, they say. In conclusion, an Englishman helps his little Japanese monkey up the noble oak tree, where the German eagle is perched. Go on, he says, try to pluck some feathers from his tail. End of chapter 7